Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, if you maybe slipped in at any point during the service since we began, my name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors here, the youth and worship pastor. Jason is away on leave, and we pray that it would be a restful time. I believe he definitely deserves it um, and has been working hard in a very busy time in the church. Whenever there's renovations, there's lots of stress. And so trust they will be, as a family, having a good time away, and trust that we will have a good time This morning, as I share out of um, chapter 6 in Mark, we began a two-part series. It's really the bare minimum for a series is two messages. And so it's the series called No Offense. We've been going through the book of Mark right through this year, and we found ourselves in chapter 6. We will get to around chapter 7 and then call it for this year and then pick up again next year. We've got some other things planned and in store. But really, if you've been around in and out as we've been going through Mark, you'll know there's been one massive theme. And Mark even starts off with it. His theme is, who is Jesus? Who is this person from Nazareth? What did he do? What did he say? And how are people responding to him? A whole lot of the book really builds up to this crescendo of who is Jesus? Who do you believe he is? And what are you going to do about it? And so it almost feels repetitive at times. And yet it's so necessary for us to be challenged time and time again to look at the person of Jesus Christ. To look at the works that he's done, the words that he said, and to ask ourselves the question, how am I responding to that? What do I believe about him? And so in this mini-series in chapter 6, we're looking at this, this theme of offense because the challenge is that Jesus wasn't loved by everyone. I often used to say this to teenagers. I says, not even Jesus could be liked by everybody. And he was perfect. He was perfect. And so we look at this, this thing of, well, how, how is there this theme of offense in Jesus' ministry and in his mission and in his words. And last week, Jason really majored on the idea that Jesus was not even welcome in his own hometown, that people were offended by Jesus, offended by his message, that some people would respond with adoration and love and affection, and they received him. They had this humble posture, and they heard what he said and saw what he did, and they said, we believe, we follow you. But on the other side, some people just rejected him and actually got upset. Their lives got challenged and there was this offensiveness that this bubbled within them and they said, I don't like this. And it's quite telling that often it was the religious people. Often it was the religious leaders. But we could all take offense when something is pointed out that we're trying not to draw attention to. When something in us is, is maybe highlighted But there's another aspect here in which as Jesus' followers, we carry his message and his message hasn't changed. And so there's a a naturally offensive feeling. There's a naturally offensive piece or part to the message of the gospel and some people will not receive it. And now we ask the question, well, how do we deal with that? How do we in a culture where where we're really feeling sensitive, where we really don't want to be offending people or offended ourselves? We don't want to hurt people's feelings. How should we be handling that when the message we're called to spread actually does have some content 
which makes people reject it and not just reject it passively, but actively be upset. And we're going to look at that and look at a really long story. And I, let me say quite out front, obviously, we don't just go out with the mission of offending people. You know, as we go through, I, I hope that will become clear as we go through the rest of this message. But right from the start, the message is definitely not to say, go out and offend as many people as you possibly can. That's the way we spread the gospel. You know, go and stir the pot. I remember in my seminary days, I had a few friends who just for giggles, whenever they, whenever they got bored, they would just stand up out of nowhere, very respectful to the lecturer, they would stand up and shout something that they knew was just divisive. They'd just be like, I believe this. And it didn't matter whether they actually believed or not, they just really were keen to see people fight about it. Because quite frankly, you get people in a room with two different opinions and you shout something inflammatory, people will start to go at it. And they'll get argumentative and, and upset. And there was chaos at times. There was lots of chaos. And these were people training to be pastors. Interesting. But we can all take offense to things. I'm sure we all know what that's like. And we've all, either by accident or by intention, offended others. And sometimes it's because we've done nothing wrong. Sometimes it's just that the, the people are carrying something and they are feeling offended because what they're carrying is just weighty. And we should expect that some, in fact, it's possible as the world goes on, many people might take offense to Jesus' message, might think it's outdated. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with it? How did Jesus deal with it when many turned away at his words? when he would say things and actually people turned away. If Jesus' message is offensive, then we should expect that some people might take offense to us if we're carrying it out. But how do we do that in a way that is not just hurtful? How do we do that in a way that is wise? How do we do that in a way that is loving? And so we're looking at this, this passage now. Um, it's a long passage, and we won't actually read all of it, and I'll, I'll end up summarizing some of it. But essentially what, what happens for context, the disciples get sent out to Jesus', to Jesus work. And before they come back to report what they've done, we've got the story in the middle of John the Baptist and his beheading. It's a really sad and gruesome story. And in one of the other Gospels, we actually get a bit of insight in which Jesus hears about it, and he actually just, he's just saddened. His heart is grieved. And he has this, he makes these comments about how John the Baptist is one of the greatest men who ever lived. And yet because of his ministry, he was, he was executed. And so we look at this and what I want to do is just read some, some of the pieces that come out in the story, read up to a point and draw out just some principles that we can take as we seek to share Jesus' message. And so join with me if you have your Bibles or your tablets or your phones or your memory. Um, turn to Mark chapter 6 verse 7 and, uh, and we'll read together from there. Jesus calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. I mean, this is really the bare minimum that Jesus is allowing them to go for ministry. It's like you're going to depend on the hospitality of others and you're going to depend on the provision of God. Okay, you're going to go out um, with sandals and I'm hoping there were shorts involved as well, but not an extra shirt. Okay, no bread, no bag, no money, just out to do the mission. And he says this then, he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Okay, so 
go on and, and expect the hospitality of others. But then he says, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This, this comes out of a practice that often happened with the, with the Jewish prophets or the rabbis in which they would come and they would bring warning. And if there was a judgment against that nation or against that people group, when they would leave, they would dust the, the sand off of their sandals, off of their feet as a way of saying, we have no part with this land and the practices that are happening in here. We're not participating in their evil. And so Jesus is almost connecting back to that. And he's saying, when you go into town spreading the gospel, if people are not going to listen to you and you've shared the best that you can in the most loving way that you've can, and they're still not receiving you, then dust the feet off your, off, off the, the sand off of your feet, off of your sandals as a way of saying, we've done our part. We've shared. We will not be held responsible for what happens to you now. Now, I don't know if we should ever jump to that. I think God has patience, and I think we should have patience with people, obviously, and in relationship. But this is just a thing of saying, there are people who will not receive you. And, and, and we should anticipate that and be willing to, to move on. He current continues in verse 12. He says, they went out and they preached. Uh, sorry, this is now Mark commenting on what happened after this instruction Jesus gives. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed the many sick people with oil and healed them. And so what we see here is really just the setting, which is going to now introduce John the Baptist's story, his long saga. And it's the spread of Jesus' message and ministry. The young people would say things are going viral, right? The video is being shared on Facebook. Everyone's hearing about things, right? And we're going to see that even now the king, King Herod, is even starting to hear about Jesus and his disciples, and these last few verses about the disciples going out and it says they preached the gospel and they cast out demons and they healed people. That should actually draw our attention right back to the beginning of Mark where Jesus starts his message by doing the exact same thing. It's a summary statement. And so now what's happening is he's saying just like Jesus started to do all of these amazing things and his fame started to spread. Now he's sending out his followers and they're starting to do the same thing. He's commissioning them to continue their, his work to continue his work, the work that he's been doing, he's saying, I now give you the authority and commission to go and continue what I've asked, what I've been doing. And so he gives them these instructions and he empowers them and he says, go. He calls them to take only what they really, really need. He defines what they need, interestingly enough. But he does warn them that not everyone will receive them. And there's a couple points just for reflection here before we move on. You see, the disciples at this point had been spending hours with Jesus. They'd been walking from city to city, going from synagogue to synagogue, watching Jesus minister, watching him do miracles, watching him preach, watching him say um, amazing parables, watching him heal people and, and, and engage with the religious leaders. And they'd been doing this life with Jesus, spending immense time with him. But now we see that that's not the end in of itself. We should, we should take courage from this and recognize that the end goal of time with Jesus is not just to stay there only. It's not just to, to hear the word being preached and to watch other people do it. Jesus, he's been training them for a purpose. And so when we gather together to encourage one another and to be encouraged ourselves, that's not the end goal in and of itself. And it's difficult because you don't want to only do something just so that you can go. 
but there's clearly a, clearly a motive here. There's clearly a, a, a pattern here that when we spend time with God, when we gather together, that the, the follow-on effect from that should be a willingness to go. A willingness to, to go beyond and to take the message to people, to continue Jesus' work. Time spent with Jesus, time spent under his word is meant to prepare us to go and to continue his work. And you actually see this pattern. So Jesus is doing the ministry. He then sends out the 12. Later on, he sends out 72. And they keep going. And at the end in in Matthew and, and in Mark, he then says, now go and teach all disciples to do the same thing. It's a fountain. It's a ripple effect. It starts with Jesus. He then equips the 12. He says, now go and make more disciples and you go and you go. And there's a multiplication that happens. That's what our goal is. But he does then warn them that doing Jesus' work, even when we do it Jesus' way, is not going to be well received by everyone. And this is the key theme we're really going to unpack this morning. Because how do we handle that? How do we handle that? I think Mark places the story of John the Baptist here with two reasons, and there might be a couple more, but two that I see. I think he's showing us the impact of Jesus' ministry, that even at this point now, a king is hearing about Jesus' work and his mission and his ministry and his followers. But also, I think he's giving us an example of just how wrong it can go even when you do everything right. See, that's the key. It's not about us just being bulls in a china shop. I don't know if we know that expression where you just, you just like, this is the gospel. This is what we believe. We're Christians. Rawr! That's not what he's saying. Jesus says that John the Baptist is one of the greatest men who ever lived. He was a humble man. A humble man. We looked at that at the beginning of the gospel about his call to ministry. And he did everything right. And yet it ended up with him being martyred. We can do everything right and still find that people will take offense. I pray that you will never have to give your life for the sake of the gospel. But some people did, and some people still do today. It's worth remembering that. And so we continue to read about this saga, what actually happens. King Herod, we read in verse 14, heard about this, hears about everything that's happening for Jesus' name had become well known And so now there's some rumors going around. What's going on? There's this man from Nazareth. He's doing stuff. And so people start asking, who is this Jesus? Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 15, others said, no, he is Elijah, right? The great prophet. And others still claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. That's like a broad statement. They're like hedging their bets there. You can just picture these people having this discussion, like who is this Jesus doing all of these amazing things? And they give those three options. Is he John the Baptist, right? Is he John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead? And we're gonna go find out now, well, how did John the Baptist die? Because this is the first we're actually hearing about it in Mark's gospel. Is he Elijah who was considered one of the greatest prophets who would return and declare the coming of the kingdom? Or is he just one of the other prophets? And we find out that King Herod has an opinion. In fact, he's, he's quite torn by this. Verse 16, when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. 
For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And now we start to get a glimpse of what's going on here and how this ties into our theme of offense. You see, Herod hears about what's going on and all these people have rumors and he now is actually struck with what I think is actually fear and a weight of conscience. He starts to realize this, this could be John the Baptist. I beheaded him. And we find out that he actually beheads him reluctantly. He's not, he wasn't excited to do that. He actually gets sort of tricked into it in some regard because he doesn't really have a backbone. And so he starts freaking out. He's saying, is this John the Baptist who has risen? Because his conscience is heavy and he knows that he's the one who's responsible for John's death. And we find out, well, the reason is something had, had happened. He had imprisoned John and bound him because of some of the things that John had been saying. Because John had been calling him out. And, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But just to read the rest of the story so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him because of what he'd been saying. Because of what John had been saying, Herodias, Philip, uh, Philip's wife, who is um, Herod's brother, she's nursing a grudge against John and wants to kill him. But she was not able to, interestingly enough, because Herod feared John and protected him. So how did he go from there to then beheading him? Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and yet he liked to listen to him. Which is such an odd thing when you think of how this story actually ends out. And just to summarize, we're not going to read through the rest of it. Essentially what happens here is this. And then I want to draw out some principles for us, because it's a big story. Essentially what happens is you have King Herod and his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Him and Herodias are having an affair. They're, they're, do, they're getting involved in some dodgy stuff and it's not very good. And so John the Baptist, being a messenger of God, says, this is not right. And he calls them out on it. He says, you should not be doing this. You are king. You are meant to be leading by example. Okay, at this stage, the law really did still have a real precedent in the country, in the land, in the nation. And so John is not just calling him to live by some random moral principle, but by something that's actually been determined by God and adopted by his people for years. And he's saying, this is not lawful. This is sinful. And interestingly enough, Herod's reaction is really random. He, he finds this quite puzzling and actually likes listening to John. It's like he's being called out on his sin, but he kind of finds it kind of pleasant to listen to, which is a bit of a weird thing. Whereas Herodias now, probably feeling threatened by this man who's calling them out on their sin, is going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we need to take care of this. We need to kill him. And Herod's like, I don't want to kill him. I think he's quite, like, good. He's righteous. He's holy. Um, I think we'll just lock him up instead. There's a compromise. So they lock him up. They bound him. What ends up happening in the rest of the story is that Herodias' daughter ends up coming into one of the parties that they were throwing. And essentially does some seductive dance. And Herod, the king, is deceived and, and sort of drawn in. He goes, I'll give you anything you want. Just name it. Name your price. I'll, I love you. This man clearly perplexed and puzzled and not in the right space. And so he makes an oath with her publicly. Mistake. Because she then goes to her mother and says, Mom, this is, what, this is what King Herod's done. He's made this oath to give me anything I might want. And, and she says, Ah, now we can get that 
John the Baptist, that preacher who's calling us out on our sin, that prophet who's, who's threatening our way of life, go ask for his head. Interesting request. And so we have this graphic story about then how he's beheaded and brought and displayed on a platter. Quite a sad story. And what I want to do is just look at how this, this, these verses, in terms of the three responses to John, the three or the three characters, the three aspects rather of offense and our response. I want to look at John the Baptist and this character and someone who we should really admire and respond to uh, or, 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 or seek to imitate. I want to look then at the response of Herodias and, and the response of King Herod and the tension that he had, and then we can close together. You see, the thing is, John was sharing what God had placed on his heart. John was being a faithful messenger, but his words weren't welcome. And we live in a world where our words aren't always welcome. They're not always welcome. See, John was a faithful messenger. He spoke the truth. He observed the sin and the relationship and he spoke up and he was not afraid to bring a challenge to a powerful man, a man in power, even though he knew it would cost him his life. He probably had many opportunities to recant, to take back his statements. He probably had many opportunities to say, actually, I take it back. And they probably would have released him because Herod had some reverence for him, but he stood by his message. He said, I cannot say anything other than what God's word says, and so I'm going to stand by that. But here's the thing. Here's the tension that we need to deal with. It is not our job today in the New Testament age as the church. It's not our job to be the moral police. See, that's, that's a wrong application, I think, of this text. For us to go out there and get involved into everyone's private life and say, even if you're not a Christian, I'm going to tell you how to live. That's not the starting point. Paul says a very interesting thing in Corinthians. He says, who am I to judge those outside the church? The apostle Paul, the great apostle, bold and, and courageous. And he says, but who am I to judge those outside the church? But then he says something so interesting. He says, should I not judge those inside? Should I not judge those inside? Because the moment someone says, I am living under the name and lordship of Jesus, they become accountable to everyone else who bears that same name. Not to the pastors only or the elders or the leadership team. We hold one another accountable. And so it is right for me to be called out by another brother or sister in the, in the faith. And it is right for me to not be afraid when I see something in the life of someone else to say, this isn't honoring to Jesus. And out of love, I need to call you to, to drop this. And there might be disagreement and we need to manage that with wisdom and with compassion. But it is not our job to go to those who clearly are not carrying a faith, clearly do not prescribe to Jesus' gospel and say, this is how you must live. Rather, we need to say, how you're living is not good for you. God is calling you into life. The, we, we can warn people of the consequences but we cannot police their actions. We share the gospel, the good news that there is life and hope in Jesus. That's where our starting point is. And then when someone comes to faith, we begin a process as a discipleship. All of us are on that. All of us are dropping off the things that are hindering us and slowing us down. We all have sin in our lives. 
but there are times where we need to speak up. Times when, when even for people outside the church, when their sinful actions are actually harming people around them, that's when I think it's time to step up. Then it's okay for me, I believe. I believe that's in the scriptures. If someone's sinful actions are causing harm to someone else, Christian or not, we speak up. We say something because God cares about justice. But it takes courage to speak because people don't want to be called out on the things in their life that aren't right. See, the the message of the gospel is by nature offensive because to be forgiven, you need to have something to forgive. To be rescued, you need to be in danger. To need a savior, you need to be saved. It confronts our ego. It confronts our pride. It confronts every idea that we are perfect and everything we believe is the right thing. It requires a humility that submits to God. And so when we carry his message, we won't always be welcome. And I wanted to ask very quickly why it might be that we are afraid to do that. I think for some people, there's maybe on the other side, we can be too eager to stir the pot, right? That's not good. But at some level, I think for many of us, there is a fear of offending, a fear of causing offense to people, a fear that if we speak up, they won't like us anymore. And I think there's a desire to be approved I don't know if any of you have watched the series, The Newsroom. It's an American political drama. It's my favorite series. It's got three seasons. And I think it's brilliant. I'm not particularly politically inclined in terms of my hobbies. It's not exactly my favorite topic of conversation. But I just love the series. I love the character development. And really what it's about, it's about this news anchor and the transformation he goes, where he was, he was considered the most popular news anchor in the world. Okay, he was, he was famous and rich. And everybody liked him because he never took a stance on anything. He never had an opinion. He just made jokes. He just was fun to be around. He was just pleasant. And then he goes through this moment in his life which turns everything upside down. And he goes on this, this journey of trying to change that. Of trying to present helpful information. Of trying to help people with his news reporting. Not just to be entertaining but to actually share information for people. And the reason I bring that up is because I just think we all experience that tension. Over three seasons, this guy experiences this tension. He's constantly making, every now and again, he'll be like, no, I just want to make the people happy. And so he, because he desires to be loved and to be approved by everyone, he makes the wrong decision. But then every now and again, he steps up and he speaks boldly. And some people are like, yes, that's what we need to hear. But some people don't like it. Are we willing to risk rejection? Are we willing to risk our reputation? I mean, if our answer is no to any of those, are we really willing to lay down our lives? It's something we need to sit with as people who carry the message. You see, the second thing I wanted to highlight is that we live in a society that is hostile to holiness. Herodias is is in her sin and she's hostile to the message of John because it's calling her to a greater standard, a standard of God. She wants to silence this voice that opposes her. We live in a time where even just the presence of disagreement is considered offensive. We can't even have different opinions. We've all got to think the same. And so if you bring any challenge, it's considered wrong. Any alternative point of view is considered wrong. 
Because anything that we desire, any sinful desire we have, we should be allowed to pursue. And we wrongly call that freedom. It's actually called slavery. It's actually slavery. And when we call people to freedom to drop the things that they so desperately want to run after and call them to actually go after God who says that actually in turning to obedience to my way, there is true freedom. We will be opposed. I wanted to read this passage in John 15, which says this, if the world, this is Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. At times I read that, and I'll be honest, it feels foreign to me. And I think that's because I've just spent so much energy just trying to fit in. That's always our temptation every day, temptation every day is to just spend our energy fitting in. When Jesus actually says, by nature, the message and the ministry that you carry is meant to stand out. I'm going to pick up the pace here because I realize we're running short on time. I wanted to also just comment quickly on Herod's interesting comment about how he pleasantly listened to John, even though John was calling him out on his sin. And I think there's a space in which sometimes we can become pleasantly apathetic. And I won't say too much on this, but I just think it's, it's just really interesting that this man can be considered righteous and holy. Says Herod, Herod saw him and he respected him. He didn't want to kill him. He was like, no, he's righteous and holy. And, and actually, I kind of fear him and respect him. And yet that person who he fears and respects is calling him out on his sin. And he sort of responds like, I'm kind of confused by that. But I'm just, I enjoy listening to you. I just like the sound of your voice. And I just think there's a little bit of warning in that for all of us and for me as well. That sometimes we don't respond with outright anger like those who aren't Christian. But sometimes the most dangerous thing is just pleasant apathy. Just willing to sit and listen, but having nothing impact us or change us or call us to do anything. Too many people are happy to sit under God's word, but never change, never respond, half-heartedly listening. It's like a form of entertainment. Thousands of people will spend their lives listening to nice talks in church only to never know Christ and be lost forever. Thousands of people will spend Sunday after Sunday in church service after church service listening to nice talks, but never know Jesus and be lost forever. That is dangerous. It's, it's worth giving it a thought. How do I approach God's word? Is it pleasant listening? Or am I eager to hear what God has to say about my life and willing to act, to be a, not just a listener, but a doer of the word? I pray that God's word would have a weight over all of our hearts that moves us to respond and change deeply. And so let me, let me close by, by saying this, now more than ever, 
I believe we live in a time that needs truth in love. Right? It's, even as I've been sharing this, I've felt the tension because the gospel is offensive by nature and we're going to disappoint people and, and anger people. But at the same time, God calls us to be loving, to be wise and caring and considerate. And so now more than ever, we need to hold the two of them together. And we're going to need God's help to do it because we live in this polarized world. I don't know if you've seen it. There's these extremes where on one side they say what matters is the truth. And what matters is the truth. And all that matters is the truth. And so we say what is true no matter the consequences. We, we, we die on what is the right thing no matter the consequences, no matter who it hurts. But on the other side, the highest value is kindness. And so we've got to make everyone happy no matter the consequences. We've got to be kind and compassionate no matter if it means compromising principles and truth. It's just so extreme. And I believe this is, it's just the perfect gap for the church. It's just prime. Like God's like set it up. He's like, you've got a world where people are just cruel and, 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 and just standing on truth, but they're not thinking about loving their neighbor. Then you've got on the other side, people who are so busy loving people that they've stopped thinking. Their mind is so, their heads are so open-minded that their brain has fallen out. And it's just the prime setting for the church to come in and say, we're going to stand on truth and we're going to be as loving as possible. And you know what? We're still going to have people who won't like us. But we're going to do it. Love and compassion without truth is, is unhelpful. It's actually not very loving at all. And truth apart from love is cold. We need to bring together both. I know for me, I, I, I spotted it a few years ago. I was watching, I've mentioned this before, I'm not sure if I have in this church. I was watching an episode of House. I found House to be an interesting character. I soon found out why, I don't know if any of you have watched House. Dr. House is this, this world-renowned doctor in this series. And essentially, he can diagnose anything. But he's got a whole lot of psychological issues and personality flaws. And one day, it was spotted and there was this episode where someone calls him out and essentially says, like, what if you could have asked your, your dad one thing? What was the one thing you wanted to hear from your dad? Like, anything. And, and most people might have said something like, I love you or I'm proud of you. And he shouts at them, you were right. The one thing he wanted to hear from his dad was, you were right. Because the thing he valued most in life was being Right. And that was my challenge. And when I started to deal with that, I found I started to become a bit more loving towards the people who I was trying to help. Because it wasn't great to just share truth in a way that wasn't loving. On the other side, our greatest value, our greatest desire can be, I want to be loved. And if that's not kept in check, we then never actually step out to share the truth that actually will help people. And so we need to value the truth and love people we share it with. We will never please everyone. Jesus didn't. But we must share God's truth with sincere love and wisdom and seek to love people by kindly reaching out. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www dot chilton church dot org dot uk